Well, it's um, just a few months away. Angie and I are going to be leaving on our sabbatical. And first, I'd just like to say thank you to the as a congregation. Thank you to you as a congregation for for making that possible. Um, that's something that that when we came here and uh, it was brought up by this church, and they, you put it in our my employment agreement. And I, I'm just thankful that you thought of us in that way and what that need would be several years before it ever happened. And so, I'm uh, just very grateful to you as a congregation. Thank you for the way that you've uh, implemented these things. And I, I think the, the sabbatical fund that was put together last year by the, the deacon board has been fully funded. And so, I just I, I want to let you know personally, I'm just so grateful for your thoughtfulness, for your kindness, and uh, we're looking forward to that time. Uh, we'll share some more details at the next quarterly meeting, but, but part of our intention in that sabbatical is to spend some time together, to work on our relationship together, to spend some time with our Lord as we build our relationship with our Savior Jesus, uh, and also to spend some time with our family. Uh, but one of the other objectives of this sabbatical is, is we're looking forward to spending some time with some of the missionaries that this church supports. And so whether we're in France or Thailand or Japan uh, at different times, uh, one of our objectives is to be able to see some of our missionaries in the culture that they work in, uh, the people that they work with on a daily basis. And and to see some of the struggles, some of the encouragements that they have, and to be able to share that with them. And so, so we're, we're certainly looking forward to that time. And as I was thinking about, about some of that, and you know, there's going to be a few days here and there where we're driving to and fro, and we won't have an, an escort, uh, some of the missionaries taking us where we need to be. And uh, I got to thinking, I have no idea how to read signs when I'm driving in some of these countries. And so uh, this week, Angie and I started... We started working on a little bit of language, uh, and we started uh, taking some very basic elementary French, so at least I might be able to read a stop sign. And, uh, you know, I, I, one of the things I noticed at the very beginning is that, is that uh, in, as, as I was studying a little bit of French, that the very first, one of the very first lessons is to teach you the word I am, the, the verb to be. And so I am, you are, he is, she is. And uh, I got to thinking about my, my kids' languages, whether it's their Spanish or their Italian. And, and in every single one of these languages, one of the very first lessons that, that's implemented is how to say, uh, to be, I am, you are. And I, I, I was wondering, well, why is that? Why, do, why, do every, why does every language course start with the word to be? And, and it makes sense if you think about it, because you know, when you're speaking with someone in, in a foreign culture, uh, you're trying to identify with them. You're trying to understand their culture, their language, and you want them to understand you. And so one of the first things that you learn is how to identify yourself. Who, who are you? And identity is, is important to, to, uh, to all of us. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when you are identifying yourself to someone and somebody says, who are you? After you say, my name is such and such, what, what's the first thing that comes out after that? How do you identify yourself? A lot of us think of the jobs that we work, our occupations. I'm a pastor. That's how I identify myself. I'm a farmer. I'm, a, I'm an insurance agent. I'm a salesman. Uh, we identify ourselves by our occupations, our, our family, uh, our appearance. Sometimes, for many of us, takes a, a many hours of our week. We, we identify strongly with how I look in front of other people. In this last 10 years, we've, we've started to identify with you know, how do I look on social media? And some of us spend more time on our Facebook accounts and our Instagram accounts and Twitter and Cuckoo and whatever all the other ones are. 
spend more time on that rather than combing our hair because we're more concerned about what our social media appearance looks like, and that's how we identify with other people. And so whether it's our, our jobs, our hobbies, identity is important to all of us as human beings. Who we are in relationship to the, to the rest of this universe, it consumes a massive amount of time that we have here on this world. So over this next few months, I invite you to, to turn with us as we, as we join together in the Epistle to the Colossians. We're going to explore this book, book verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we're going to discover the importance of knowing the identity of the greatest person in the universe, Jesus Christ. The church at Colossae was, was a young body of believers, and they had received the, the great news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, a great Savior. But like us, they faced a lot of temptations. They faced temptations just like ours, and they had they had found that there's, there's always something else that's competing for our allegiance. And as we identify ourselves with the world around us and, and try to, to discover what our identity is, there are so many different things that, that pull one direction or another. And they face a lot of these same temptations. There's always something else that promises greatness. Always something else that, that vies for our allegiance. And we have this propensity to, to wrap up our identity in these objects of greatness. Entertainment, politics, sports, careers, religion, education, philosophy. But the message of the letter to the Colossians is that Jesus is greater. You're going to see that throughout the entire book. Jesus is supreme. He's first. He takes first place in all things. Jesus is greater. And you've heard me say it before. That, that God is, has not identified you as a farmer who happens to be a follower of Jesus. But He identifies you as a follower of Jesus who just happens to be a farmer. You're not a basketball player who follows Jesus, but you are a disciple of Jesus who just happens to play some basketball so that others will see how Jesus has changed the way that you play the game. You're not a wife and mother that finds time for Jesus on the side but rather your identity as a follower of Jesus, it defines the excellence in which you live out your role as a woman of God. Many of these good careers, all of these hobbies, these identifiers, as well as many of the bad habits as well, some of the addictions, the superstitions that we spend time on, all of these things, whether they're good or bad, they're going to vie for your time. They're going to vie for your attention, your heart, your mind. Your worship. You were created to worship. And if you are not worshiping Jesus Christ, you are going to fill that hole with something else because that's what you were created to do. And so those things will get your attention and your worship. And the temptation will cry out for you to wrap up your identity in these objects of greatness. But Colossians demonstrates that Jesus is greater than all these. As we turn to the text, let's first turn to the, the Lord of, of the Word and, and let's ask Him to bless this time as we study His Word together. Father, we, we thank You that You've given us Your Word. We thank You that, that letters like this one that were passed on to, to the church in Colossae, that, that they've been given to us today and we have the privilege of reading these things, of studying Your Word, uh, of looking at the, the details of these, this Word that is, that is alive and active, that's sharper than any two-edged sword. 
It penetrates. Separating even the bone and the marrow, the soul and the spirit. And you've given us the Scripture that our lives might be changed. In those areas where we, we can't differentiate life from death, Your Word penetrates and discovers. It exhorts. It convicts. And so we thank You for this letter that You gave to the Colossians, and we thank You that we hold it in our hands today and have the privilege of looking at what You had to say to them and how that impacts our life today. Particularly as we, as we consider this wonderful truth that Jesus is greater. He is preeminent. He takes first place in all things. I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would help us to discover not just what that means on paper, not just what that means as we hear it in our ears, but that our minds would start to wrap, wrap around this concept that Jesus is greatest. He is preeminent. And Father, I pray that you would show us how that needs to be played out in our lives in areas where Jesus is not being demonstrated as the greatest but we've put something else there so my prayer is that you teach us that you would mold us into the image of jesus christ so that we would be representatives of you here on this earth that you've given to us amen you know every parent enjoys watching their children and listening to their children's dreams we've all asked our, our kids at one point or they've come to us voluntarily and said you know what do you want to be when you grow up we all had those ideas when we were kids. Uh, astronaut, president of the United States, a football player, a singer. Uh, a lot of you are 60, 70 years old, and, and, and you finally, I think, got an idea of what you want to be when you grow up right now. Um, every child has their unique dreams, and, and, it, and those dreams show how they begin to identify themselves. And eventually, they, they change from one thing to another, but different characteristics start to distinguish them from, from even their own siblings. And you start to see patterns in a, in a child uh, of some of their strengths and their weaknesses and the things that, that really just make them tick. And, and the way that God made them. And, and each child is, is just different. And then you marvel at how that uniqueness in each child, it, it just, it's, you see how they were specially prepared by God. And just the way that He made them for the, the context that He puts them in for the rest of their lives, for the ministry that they serve in, the, the career that they choose, the life and the family that God made for them. And you see how that uniqueness in that individual just was specially prepared to, to make them ready for what God had for them. You know, often our dreams, our desires, they, they fit hand in hand with God's calling for our lives. You know, some of us know right away early on and and you say, well, this is what I want to be when I grow up. This is what I want to do. And, and you see God's calling and it all just goes really well together. And then there's others of us that are very surprised by, by God's calling. And we find ourselves on this path of life that we never would have chosen for ourselves. And we think we're going this direction and then you know, 20 years later, we went, wow, I never would have imagined that this is where God would have brought me today. Um, but we see how he directed that journey and led us in his will. But most of us find ourselves somewhere in between. As we grow and mature, God shapes each one of us. He molds our strengths and our weaknesses together through and through so that, so that we are as unique as the fingerprints that distinguish us from one another. Well, the Apostle Paul was an individual and, and he introduces himself, uh, his identity here at the beginning of this book. Uh, the Apostle Paul was an individual who identified himself 
uh, before he was a believer with his zeal for, for Old Testament law. There, there are a lot of scholars today that believe that, that he was a man, uh, th- this man who was formerly known as Saul, they believe that he was being trained to be the chief teacher of Israel. Uh, we know that he was a student of Rabbi Gamaliel, probably the greatest teacher in, in the days of, of Jesus among the rabbis of Israel. Uh, he's quoted a couple times even in the New Testament. But a student of the, the great Rabbi Gamaliel, uh, Paul Saul, uh, was a student that was being groomed to eventually succeed his, his instructor. However, here was this man who was passionately pursuing the truth, and, and yet in the midst of that passion, he, he missed it. He missed God's calling. Rather than embrace the Messiah whom he was waiting for, he instead became the persecutor of the Messiah and the Messiah's people. Rather than embrace uh, the Messiah, uh, he persecuted, and instead of preaching the truth, his sin led him down a road in which he was continually pers- he, he continually pursued the great lie that he could prove himself by his own righteousness, and he strove after this and strove after this to be a better and more perfect and a better keeper of the law. Well, his purpose for life eventually led him to being to being the chief persecutor of the church. If you remember when Stephen was being martyred, the first martyr of the church, uh, who, who was it that held everyone's coats and stood in approval as they threw rocks and stoned this man to death? It was Saul. And, and so, uh, in his own words in 1 Timothy, where he, he shares his testimony to this young disciple, this pastor, he said, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, so that means a violent man. When he looks back on his life before he became a Christian, that was his, his, his assessment of, of who he was before. But he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me and with, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And so, so, so Jesus met Saul. Many of you have read the passage in Acts. He, he met him on the road to Damascus. And there on that road, he was blinded, after which the persecutor was saved, and then he became the persecuted. And as many of you know, Paul was used by our Lord in advancing the cause of Christ, probably more so than anybody in, in, in church history than, than anyone else except for Jesus Christ Himself. He was converted on the road to Damascus. He studied the Scriptures. He taught the Scriptures. He traveled through the Middle East. He traveled. He was the first missionary into Europe to preach the Gospel to the Gentiles there. He was responsible for the, the message of the Gospel spreading into Europe and is largely responsible for the message spreading to you. If it wasn't for those early days of those missionary journeys, uh, the, the New Testament church would have looked very different, and it would be interesting to see how this church would be different, how many of us would have been impacted in a different way. When we studied the book of First Thessalonians, excuse me, skipping ahead there, you know, the, the um, and so Paul was, was this man who impacted the church age, and, and, and he was a man that was changed completely. And God calls him as an apostle, as one who was a witness of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And he went out and he proclaimed the Word of God, laying a foundation for the church. 
Uh, Colossians also tells us that there was another person that wrote the book of Colossians with Paul. There, there were Paul and Timothy. And the co-writer of this epistle was, was this young man named Timothy. And, and here in our text, he's just called our, our brother. From Acts, we know that he, he had a Jewish mother. And he was, uh, she was a believer. He also had a Gentile father that was not. He was spoken of highly by those in his hometown of Lystra and the nearby town of Iconium. And when Paul met him, he saw the reputation that this young man had and the potential that he had for ministry. And so Paul said, I, I want to take this, this young man along with me in, in my missionary journeys and, and the work that God has for us. And so uh, he ministered to the churches on that, that, first, that uh, second missionary journey. And then Timothy followed Paul. He was trained by him. Eventually he became a pastor in Ephesus itself. And he served the churches that Paul had planted. Uh, a while back, we were studying the book of 1 Thessalonians. And when, when we did that, we saw that, that Timothy, at that time, he was just a young man that had just started traveling with the apostle and with, with Silas. And, and since 1 Thessalonians, which we looked at a while back, 10 years have passed. Not 10 years for us, but 10 years uh, from the writing of 1 Thessalonians to the writing of Colossians. And it was during Paul's imprisonment, most likely in Rome, uh, from which he wrote this letter that Timothy was there with them, and together they, they wrote this epistle and, and they sent it to Colossae. It's possible that Timothy may have even been responsible for much of how Colossians was written. At the least, he would have been Paul's scribe and, and penned the words that were dictated by, by Paul himself. But, but it was over that decade of ministry, it was over that decade that, that God transformed a timid young man who Paul sometimes had to remind, said, you need, you need to be bold in, in sharing your faith. Don't be timid about the message that God's called you to preach. And, and God took this timid young man who had frequent stomach illnesses, he had his weaknesses that, that Paul calls out and says you need to take care of these things, and, and through, the, God, through God's will, Timothy was transformed into a, a pivotal partner in the advancement of the gospel in God's kingdom. And our God is still in the process, in the business, of taking unlikely individuals who find a, a, who find a greater identity, an identity that is defined by the, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And this is the beauty of God's will as he, as he shapes each one of us into unique individuals who have the opportunity to be a part of advancing the good news of Jesus Christ into the whole world. And God has chosen you He's chosen me to carry that message. Be careful not to diminish the ministry and the role to which He's called you. And so the first thing we see is that, that God's, God's will defines our calling. And, and whatever role and whatever position He's put us in, He has shaped you uniquely for that calling to which His will has directed you. But also note that our position is defined by Christ's work. Uh, read verse 2, where, where Paul and Timothy go on to describe the church to whom they wrote this epistle. They continue and they say, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, now these are common words, aren't they? We, we read a greeting like this, and we think, you know, this is an ordinary greeting. These are ordinary introductory things. We've read a lot of other epistles, and it sounds like a lot of the other things that we've read in 1 Thessalonians and Philippians and Ephesians. Paul, Paul sounds kind of like I've heard him before. Uh, just like I, I write an envelope, and on the outside of the envelope, I, I give a return address, and I put down who I'm writing to. You open the letter, dear so-and-so, at the end of the letter, sincerely. And in Greek and Roman letters, they would put the greeting at the very beginning, and Paul would introduce himself, Timothy would introduce himself, and then they would say, 
to so-and-so. And that's what we find here. And so likely you've seen other Bible verses that sound a lot the same, but again, don't let the impact of how Paul addresses this church slip by you. It was a common practice of the Apostle Paul to write letters to these churches that he had visited to, that he sometimes have to correct them, sometimes have to encourage them. In those letters, he would provide teaching for them to incorporate into their understanding of, of, of who God is. He'd incorporate application for, for how they need to live these things out in their lives. And so we find churches like Ephesus and Corinth. You know, these are churches that knew Paul and you know, he was our pastor for a couple of years, they'd say. And, and then you, you find letters in the New Testament like, like um, Galatians, Philippians, Thessalonians. You know, these were, these were churches where, where Paul had... Um, he was the first man to preach the gospel in these cities. However, when we come to the book of Colossians, Paul had never met the people in this church. Or if he did, it would have been when they had come to visit him in, in various places or heard him preach in one of these other churches. Paul had never met this church that he's writing this letter to, and it's possible that he had, he had maybe passed through the city on his way to somewhere else. But Colossae was never one of the stops in Paul's missionary journeys. So it kind of distinguishes Colossians from a lot of these other, these other churches. But instead, the Gospel of Christ, it had come to Colossae likely when another man named Epaphras, you may have heard of him in Philippians. We'll hear of him a little bit later in Colossians again as he's described. And Epaphras came and he preached it there. Uh, from what we know of, uh, from Epaphras, it appears that, that Colossae was his hometown. Uh, he was a humble pastor who loved the people. He had grown up with them there. He, he grew up in Colossae. He knew the, the cold waters of, of the, the river that flowed through that town. Uh, he knew of, we look, when we looked at Revelation, remember the, the three towns around Colossae? He had Colossae itself. And then uh, the church that Jesus addresses in Revelation was Laodicea. Laodicea was known for what? You guys remember? Warm, putrid, yucky water. It was that water that, that Jesus said, it makes you want to vomit. He says, this is what reminds you me of Laodicea. And Laodicea was a sister town to Colossae. And then, and then on the other side, you had a town named Hierapolis, which was known for its, its great hot springs. And, and so that's the environment that, that Epaphras grew up in. And he was there in, in Colossae growing up. And, and now he was a humble pastor who just loved the people that he had grown up with. And he was faithful. He preached God's Word. He was an encourager. We're not told a lot about him, but, but like many other individuals that God has used to transform the world, Epaphras was likely an ordinary person who came to know Jesus, and then he was just faithful to serve him where God put him. And through his ministry, a church was planted in Colossae because the people heard the good news about Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins. And they believed. But then look at how God describes these ordinary believers who became followers of Jesus. He's writing to the church of Colossae, but he describes them in a very particular way. Some of it unique to hear. First, he calls them saints. What does that mean? We've heard the word before. It's common. What do you think of when you hear the word saints? What comes to your mind? Some of us are going, I don't know what it means. It's just kind of this big word that sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, if you were a saint, wow, I'd be pretty cool. That'd, that'd be an amazing treat if I could be a saint. 
Uh, I'd be a really spiritual person if I was a saint. You know, the, um, the common perception of the word saint is that, that it only refers to the, the most holy, the, the most important, the most prominent people of Christianity. And if you're going to be a saint, you have to do something really, really special. Uh, some churches teach that in order to be awarded sainthood, you, uh, you first have to perform miracles. You also have to be dead. And, uh, and, and you have to uh, have lived an exemplary life or have died as a martyr. But that's not what the Bible teaches about being a saint. The Bible gives us a completely different picture. The word saint comes from the same word that we use, uh, that we get the words sanctification from. Holy. Set apart. All those words come from the, the same Greek word. And so quite literally, if you are a Christian... Let me ask yourself if you fit this category. If you are a Christian, then God has declared you to be a saint. You are declared holy by God. You are set apart by God. If you've trusted Jesus Christ and you are relying on the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins, then what the Bible says about you is that you are a saint. The moment that you believed, you were made to be a holy one. That's what saint means. It means a holy one. And so Paul addresses these believers in Colossae and he proclaims their position as saints. What, what an encouraging, encouraging reminder for this small church that lives up this river valley bit off the, the beaten path. And so regard the importance of the work of the saints. Ministry and service. It, it is not only for the leaders of the church, but their ministry and service are important for all of the saints. And that includes you. Here at DeWitty Free, you're going to hear us stress a lot, all the time, that the importance of everyone sharing in the work of the ministry. And if you're a member, if you're a regular attender here, I can't emphasize enough that you are called alongside to serve alongside all of the saints as a fellow saint, a fellow holy one that has a ministry to reach the lost and to impact this world. There are many opportunities in this body where you can use the gifts and the talents that God's given to you, but don't neglect the position of ministry that He's called you to be as one of His saints. Colossians are also called faithful brothers. Uh, the word faithful is the same word for believing. Uh, and so some people would say, well, he's just referring to maybe that they're, they're believers. But, but the, the tense that he uses in it is very unique for, um, it's not used in the sense of a believer, but, but those who are, who are faithful to what God's called them to be. Uh, it's a title that's only used of one other church in, in all of these epistles. Uh, it, it was used of the Ephesians. And the church of Colossae, it was a, it was a small church. It was composed of Jews and Gentiles who lived upriver from the main road as he passed through that region. And in Christ, though, this was a church that proved to be faithful. To be sure, they were, they were, there were challenges that they faced. There were potential problems that needed to be addressed. But, but as Paul approaches this church, he says, not only are you saints, not only are you, are, you, are you holy ones, but you are a church that's been faithful. And he commends them for, for the service and the, the faithfulness in which they, they demonstrated their faith. And he calls them brothers. But finally, I want you to note how the, the relationship that we have with the Father, that it abounds with blessing. 
And this abundance of the riches that we have in Jesus Christ marks our identity as, as co-heirs with Christ. It, it was very customary uh, in, in letters of those days, um, and in all of Paul's letters, he, he greets each one of the churches, and he usually includes this blessing of grace and peace. You read Ephesians, grace and peace. Philippians, grace and peace. Thessalonians, Philemon, grace and peace. Uh, grace to you it was a common Greek uh, greeting, and then the customary Hebrew greeting was shalom, which means peace. And so what Paul does is he, he combines both of those greetings, the, the Greek hello and the Hebrew hello, and he takes the theological significance of those ideas of grace and peace, and, and he combines those into the greetings of all of his letters. But don't miss the importance of the theology that's embedded in that salutation that, that the apostle so commonly offers. Grace. It means something good that you were given, but you don't deserve it. When God gives His grace to you, He's giving you something good that you don't deserve, but He gives it to you anyway. What's mercy? It's kind of the opposite of that. It's getting something good, uh, or excuse me, it's, it's not getting something that you do deserve. Uh, and, and so in His mercy, He doesn't give to you the wrath that should have been poured out on you. And so in His mercy, he, he doesn't give you what you do deserve. Grace is when He gives you something good that you don't deserve, but He gives it to you anyway. And, and the Bible teaches us that God pours out His grace on us. He, he continues to, to lavish us with His great and, and glorious grace. And grace comes to us from God our Father. And, and it's most evident in the gift of salvation that He freely offers to everyone. And if you are a Christian, then you have become a partaker in what is an undeserved gift. If you receive salvation, you, you did not deserve it. And I did not deserve it. But God in His grace has poured it out. His goodness. And there's some of you that are sitting here today and, and, and you've not yet received that forgiveness that He offers to you. You've not received this good gift. And it's a free gift that He offers to you. And you might sing the songs and you might listen to the sermons. You might even get involved in some of the ministries that take place in this building, but, but you're still at a point, not at a point where you know His grace and you don't experience the joy that comes with that grace. You don't have eternal life. And if you died today, your eternity would be void of that grace that belongs to the saints. He also talks about peace. Peace, it not only refers to the, the tranquility that rests within a Christian soul as a result of their salvation, but, but peace also refers to a changed relationship that Christians have with God the Father. If, if you have not placed your soul in His care and are not depending on Jesus alone as the one who took your place, if you have not believed on Jesus, then you are, you are still at war with God, the Bible tells us. You are still under His wrath. You don't know His peace, but only the turmoil that comes from a, a relationship that's in friction at war with Him. In fact, it tells us that you're, you're an enemy of your Creator. He's holy. And you have no better standing before Him than any other enemy. And though He loves you, that's still how He sees you. But if you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus that He completed when He was crucified on the cross to pay the penalty of your punishment, and you will receive the forgiveness of, of each and, and all for each and every sin based on His grace and the peace that comes with that. You become a partaker in His grace 
and in His peace here on earth and for all of eternity. And then those blessings will be continually bestowed on you as you continue to serve Him. Don't miss out on the importance of the Gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. As we, as we just look at this opening greeting, we see that, that you know, our, as, as believers, we, we can't miss the importance that you have been called by the will of God, that you are saints, that you are brothers and sisters because of who you are in Christ. And the identity that you have because of the preeminence of Christ, it means that your life in Him abounds with the riches of God's grace and His peace.